welcome to another episode of Christ in Context, a podcast dedicated to seeing Christ in all of Scripture and using all of Scripture to filter all of life. My name is Kevin, I am your host, and this podcast is a proud member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. So if you didn't hear last week, the Society of Reformed Podcasters is a group of like-minded podcasts or podcasters. Um, we're all from the Reformed traditions. Um, diff- there's varying uh, degrees of that. Me and Luke from Study Anchor are Reformed Baptists, and there's a couple Presbyterians in there. I don't know everyone else's theological convictions, but we're all Reformed to some degree or another. So um, for lots of really good material, go check out reformpodcasts.com. Um, I've really enjoyed listening to the stuff that they've been putting out. Um, on another note, I want to connect with you guys. So I just want to remind you that I do have um, an email connected to this podcast. It's just for the podcast. I've, I use it. It's a Gmail, so I use the Google Docs for all of my notes and stuff. It is ChristInContextPod at gmail.com. So if you've got questions, um, I want to respond to them. I want to get to know the viewers. I want to know uh, who I'm talking to and um, what you want to hear more of, what you want to hear less of. You know, I'm I'm doing this for you. So, yeah, I want to try to do some Q&As or maybe question and responses, Q&Rs, um, because I won't, may, I won't always have an answer, but... Um, yeah, just send me stuff and maybe that'll be something we can do at the beginning of an episode. Maybe that'll be something we do throughout the week or something that just kind of happens whenever, um, stuff gets sent to me. It just kind of depends on how much, um, questions or how much feedback I'm getting from you guys. Um, on another note, um, pray for Todd White. So this was this was a big thing pretty much all of last week because he preached a sermon um saying he repented of not teaching the whole gospel um people were going crazy cuz he mentioned that he was reading Spurgeon and Ray Comfort he even mentioned Whitfield so I listened to the whole sermon it was pretty nuts I was impressed that you know he was talking about how the law isn't just like if you preach from the law, it's not legalism and you're using it um, as a source of showing how we are condemned in Christ, like, or we're condemned. Sorry. I'm so sorry. We're condemned by the law and not condemned in Christ. Um, Sorry. It's late. Um, I try to get these out on Mondays and I try to pre-record them on Saturday or Sunday and then, just schedule them to be post posted on Mondays. But I was thinking maybe I'll actually just record it on Monday morning. And that just didn't happen. Uh, me and my wife have our days off on Monday. So we just uh, spent the day together <laughs> pretty much. Um, anyways, so pray for Todd White. Um, apparently this previous weekend, he was just back to his old shenanigans. I haven't listened to that sermon, so I can't confirm. Um, I've just, that's what I've heard. So just be praying for him that he would actually realize the weight of what he said 
and that he does need to be preaching the real gospel. So today is, um, we're continuing out of context. This is number five, and we're talking about Jeremiah 29.11. Next week, we're going to be diving into Zechariah, and I'm really excited. I ordered another commentary on the Minor Prophets, um, so I'm really excited to be diving into that and really seeing, you know, what what God is saying through Zechariah and just really studying in depth the scriptures. And um, yeah, there will be other out-of-context episodes that kind of come here and there, but um, I want to I wanna hear from you if there's a passage or a, you know, some type of proverbial phrase or, you know, something that's kind of biblical related and you think it's just taken way out of context and like, let's talk about it. Let's, let's try to be as faithful to the text of scripture as we can. So just a precursor for this episode. Um, I was trying really hard to find some sources, but I don't own any actual commentaries on Jeremiah. I've taken old Testament classes, um, but I, I don't own any actual books on or commentaries on Jeremiah. I was having a hard time finding online stuff. So a lot of what I'm doing is just connecting texts of scripture based on my own brief exegesis and um, just some other thoughts that I do have later on, which might not be directly related, but I think it's still important to be thinking about um, as we're talking about this passage. So this first half is just mainly going to be going verse by verse like we normally do. And then um, the other half is going to be talking about like how this relates to the New Testament. And it's hard to do that because it's pretty vague about how um, a promise for exiled Israelites relates to um, the New Testament church. So, I'm I'm interested to see kind of how this goes. Um, I know it's not a direct connection per se, but you'll kind of, I, I hope that I can explain w- why I'm going the way that I go. So, before we get into that, let's talk about how this verse is taken out of context. The verse is, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you hope, to give you a future and a hope. Um, really popular verse. A lot of times it's on really nice, um, like plaques with really nice lettering and it's sold in like little shops, I think like Hobby Lobby and stuff like that. You know, people might not even know if it's from the old Testament or the new Testament. Non-Christians will just see it and think it's cute and buy it. And it's also blasted all the time with prosperity teaching that like God has a wonderful plan for your future and he's going to take you out of your suffering. He's going to cancel your financial debt. Um, He's going to get you out of your suffering really quickly. And a lot of it just depends on man-centered understanding of what is good and what is bad, uh, what is you know, it says plans for welfare and calamity. So kind of a man-centered view of welfare and calamity. Uh, And 
so that in itself just spirals out of control because we don't interpret scripture based on how we understand it, but we interpret scripture on how God has said that we should understand it. Uh, so let's talk about a little bit of the context before we even get into reading the passage. Um, if you go one chapter previous to chapter 28, then you'll, I'm going to read the first three verses of 28 and we'll get a pretty good picture of, uh, a little bit of what's going on. So it says, now in the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year, in the fifth month, Hananiah, the son of Azar, the prophet, who is from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I am going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. So just these first couple verses, we get an idea of uh, there's this guy Hananiah, and he's talking to Jeremiah. He confronts him and says that God had told Hananiah that Israel won't be in exile for more than two years. And the way that Jeremiah responds is pretty snarky. He And maybe it could be read just literally. He says, um, He says, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord uh, confirm your words, which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all the exiles from Babylon to this place. And then, and so it could be just Jeremiah saying, yeah, I really hope that's true. But he also says, yet hear now this word, which I am about to speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. When I read so then when I go back and I read that, amen, may the Lord do so, etc. Um, I think of it as just like a really snarky, like sarcastic, like, oh yeah, sure. Make, like God's totally going to do that. I don't know. It might just be my own sarcastic personality. I don't know. But all of this is to say that there's a conflict between prophecies. Jeremiah is hearing God in one way, Hananiah is claiming to hear God in another way, and so a little bit later, we get this letter. So chapter 29 is a letter that Jeremiah wrote, and I'm going to read this whole passage. It's a lengthy one, so bear with me. It's chapter 29, verses 1 to 14, and the first verse explains that this is a letter to uh the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and the people that Nebuchadnezzar took from Jerusalem to Babylon. So I'm going to read this and then we'll go not exactly verse by verse because that'll just take forever, but we'll try to pick some important points from a couple of these verses and just continue on. So verse one says, now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah, and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths, had departed from Jerusalem. This letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, so that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you, to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Sorry my voice is a little cracky and choppy. I'm just trying to keep my voice down. Um, it's it's also just midnight, um, so my voice is kind of scratchy, but I'm trying to keep my voice down. My wife is asleep. So, um, that's just kind of what's going on with my voice. So I apologize. That's just how it's going to be for the rest of the podcast. Deal with it. So we already explained that verse from verse one, we understand that this is a letter and it's specifically to those who have been taken out of Jerusalem and sent away to exile. Um, and then verse four, we get this important note which it might just be something that a lot of us skim over and just keep reading, looking, you know, we're looking past it for some of the juicier stuff, but this is important. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So God himself says that he sent the Israelites into exile. And this is a lot of times really problematic. Um, I had a conversation with a former, he used to be one of my pastors and he was explaining to me that the God of Calvinism is a moral monster and um, irresistible grace is just a form of divine rape. And it was just all kinds of nonsense and God doesn't cause evil. He does. If he did, um, if God determined that evil things would happen, then he would be the cause of evil. And so it was just a whole, it was a train wreck. Um, and yet we have passages like this where God himself says that he sent 
the Babylonians and allowed them to take the Israelites into exile. And it's, we read something like this, a lot of times we just read that as descriptive and continue on and look for something more powerful or more uh, proverbial, something that we could just quote a lot quicker, something that's easier to remember. But this is really important uh, to God's character, that he disciplines and righteously punishes. So he disciplines his people and he righteously punishes sinners. Continuing on to verses 6 through 9, it's this big chunk that lays out basically some general principles for enduring the exile, embracing it instead of just constantly trying to fight against the Babylonians. Instead, God tells them to pray for the Babylonians, seek the welfare of whatever city they're in, because in doing so, it will bring about the welfare of the Israelites. If things are going well for the whole population of the Babylonians and the Israelites are held captive by the Babylonians, it's it's just naturally going to follow that it's going to go well. Live peaceably, all that stuff. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on um, Jeremiah, he says, while the king of Babylon protected them, the Israelites, They must live quiet and peaceable lives under him in all godliness and honesty, patiently leaving it to God to work deliverance for them in due time. So it's kind of accepting that this is where we're at. We're in exile, and there's not a whole lot that they can do except trust that God is the one. If he sent them there, he's going to have to be the one to take them out. So then we continue moving on to verses 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, And there's a little bit of a shift from here's what to do to God explaining his purpose in bringing them to exile. And in verse 10, it's, it just naturally follows that this is not a a permanent exile because God says that this is after 70 years, he's going to start bringing people back. So 70 years is not a long time. It feels like a long time, but in the scope of all history, it's not a very long time. And God's reminding them that this is 70 years. You could look at it as, oh, it's only 70 years, or you could look at it as, wow, that's a whole 70 years. Either way, it's not eternity. This isn't the end, end all, be all. Verse 11 is... God continuing to explain um, what his purpose is in sending the Israelites into exile. So when we understand it as that, just as such, that verse 11 is an explanation, that in itself should just dismantle maybe about half of the ridiculous claims that are made based on this verse. Might even dismantle more than that. But when we understand that this is God explaining that he has a a purpose for sending the Israelites into an awful situation, it's not just this uh, arbitrary statement that God makes of, yeah, I've got good plans for you. I want you to prosper. I want you to be healthy and wealthy. I want you to have good welfare. I want to give you hope. 
when we understand that the Israelites are heartbroken, they feel abandoned, and as though God had just broken every promise that um, most of the promises and most of the legal codes of the law are in some way related to the land. And so when they're ripped out of the land, it's like, I thought we were going to keep this land. And I want to explain something as well, that perhaps the feeling that the Israelites had maybe wasn't a justified feeling. Well, I don't want to say wasn't justified um, because they felt it, but um, there was, there's something in Deuteronomy when we understand the conditions of the law. It's important that we do keep in mind the conditions of the law. This wasn't just God, you know, trying to be as patient as he can and then just on the flip of a dime just allows the Babylonians to take over. No, he actually promised the Israelites through Moses right before they entered the land, hey, if you don't keep your end of the deal, you're going to be ripped right on out. Um, And so it should actually shock us that he has endured with patience so long and hasn't taken them out of the land sooner. Um, Let me read Deuteronomy 28. I'm going to read a couple pairs of verses um, just throughout. There's, I mean, just go back and read all of Deuteronomy 28. You'll get a good feel of the blessings that the Israelites would have if they kept their end of the deal, and then all of the consequences for not um, being faithful to their end of the covenant. So 33 and 34 of Deuteronomy 28 says, A people whom you do not know shall eat up the produce of your ground and all your labors, and you will never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually. You shall be driven mad by the sight of what you see. Which, in Lamentations, there's plenty of really graphic poetry to explain the absolutely horrific things that the Israelites saw and did during exile. Uh, Verses 36 and 37. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. You shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you. It's sounding like that's exactly what they're facing. Verses 45 and 46. So all these curses which this is why I say go read all of 28. There's plenty of curses. Um, I'm just highlighting the ones related to exile particularly, but there's other things saying that you're, you won't have good produce, uh, you're, uh, the land won't be fertile, etc. Uh, there, there'll be like lots of, I think, yeah, the, the cricket shall possess all your trees and the, produce of your ground. There's all kinds of other stuff, but I'm trying to highlight this 
theme of being taken out of the land. So verses 45 and 46. So all these curses shall come on you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed, because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes, which he commanded you. They shall become a sign and a wonder on you and your descendants forever. Verses 49 to 50. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, who will have no respect for the old, nor show favor to the young. Verse 52. It shall besiege you, that is, the nation, that's the foreign nation that they don't know, shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land, and it shall besiege you in your towns throughout, in all your towns throughout your land, which the Lord your God has given you. Verses 62, uh, yeah, verses 62 to 64, then you shall be left few in number, whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, because you did not obey the Lord your God. It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you. Now, this is crucial to what I was saying previously about how God had sent the Israelites into exile. Yeah, listen to this. So the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. Those are some tough words to hear. But it's part of our part of the word of God. It's part of God's strict and fierce promise to the Israelites that this is what he's going to bring about. And you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. I hope that that last passage shakes us up. It should. That's that's the purpose of it. The Lord delight. The Lord will delight over you to make you perish, and destroy you. And this isn't because he's sadistic, but um. There is uh, an aspect of God getting delight in bringing just judgment. And it's a very serious thing that we should think about regularly. Um, but I don't want to focus the whole episode on th- on that. I want to be focused on 2911, where the whole flow of the book of Jeremiah... Um, Chapters 1 through 29, it shifts right at about 29 and 30. It starts to take this shift from all of this doom and gloom and Jeremiah just saying, whoa, what was the city? What was this nation? And all of this horrific um, language. And it takes this shift towards hope at about chapter 30. 29 or 30. And so I don't want to take away from the hope of what Jeremiah is bringing towards those who are in exile. 
But before we move on to that, I want to read a quote from Matthew Henry, where he says, we are sometimes ready to fear that God's designs concerning us are all against us. Like when I read the the last passage of Deuteronomy 28 that I just read, where it says that the Lord will delight in their destruction. Yeah, it feels as though God's designs concerning us are all against us, but he knows the contrary concerning his own people, that they are thoughts of good and not of evil. Even that which seems evil is designed for good. His thoughts are all working towards the expected end, which he will give in due time. And that's the purpose of 2911. God knows the means and the ends. He knows exactly where he is bringing uh, the Israelites to, even though they might not see it. And so he's reminding them that he is the steady rock that they need to be clinging to in order to get through. And that's what verses 12 to 14 are all about. They're saying, they say this, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. This is God's heart for, this is his purpose in this disciplinary punishment. Uh, Verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. So the purpose of this is that the remnant would be faithful. And that's the theme throughout biblical history is this faithful remnant that God is preserving a faithful remnant for himself. So, I mean, even just with all of that said, I think we could end theoretically. We could just end right there and say, yeah, the purpose of 2911 is that um, God is sovereign over all things that happen, including the horrific exile He's sovereign over it. He has plans for it. He planned it out. He knows what he's doing. And so when we think about some of the horrific things that we go through, or we see our brothers and sisters going through across the world, um, we remember that God is sovereign over it. However, I do want to bring a contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament, because it's easy to kind of get foggy and blur the lines and just take an Old Testament promise and just slap it on and not really understand the distinction between an Old Testament promise and a New Testament promise. And so, basically, and this in part has to do with our understanding of the covenants, which I'm not going to go totally in depth with, um, but we are under the covenant of grace, whereas This promise was made during the covenant of works. So, um, an important distinction to be made is that what the Israelites were going through was a punishment, a severe punishment for their disobedience. Whereas all of us in Christ, in a sense, don't have to 
fear punishment like that um, because the punishment for our sins have been born by Christ. However, there is still discipline that God brings about. He still judges unbelievers, um, and sometimes we're swept along in that. Um, maybe I'm playing a dicey word game. I'm not too strong in covenant theology, something I need to be focusing on hopefully later this year. But there is a firm distinction between uh, Old Covenant Israel and New Covenant Church uh, and the sufferings that we face. The sufferings that the Israelites were facing was because of their sins, whereas the sufferings that the church faces is because of our faithfulness to Christ. So, um, there is still promise, though, that at the end of this age, we will reap a harvest of um, our faithfulness. We, you know, we'll be rewarded for the faithfulness that we have, um, but we still face sufferings because of our faithfulness rather than because of our unfaithfulness. So, I do want to make that distinction, but I do think that there's a cool... um, relationship between um the between Israel and the church as in terms of exile and what i mean is in 1 Peter 2 9 through 11 Peter says but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for god's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, which some people might translate that as exiles and wanderers uh, or exiles and sojourners, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And so I bring that connection because... Right now, we feel as though we are exiles, and in part, we are. Uh, We're not joined with the full kingdom. We're not totally, you know, the kingdom isn't fully established on earth. So we are in part exiles, but again, not due to the same purpose. Uh, It's not a punishment for our own unbelief. It's just how God has designed this. So I want to read a bunch of passages related to suffering, just because as I was reading this, I got kind of caught up. I was studying for it. I was getting a bunch of passages ready to connect um, Israel and the church and kind of do this typological study. But instead, I wanted to focus more on... um, the world hating the church and the sufferings that we endure because um, this passage is related to Israel that, you know, the passage at hand, Jeremiah 29, 11 is related to Israel suffering. And um, we as the church are the continuation of Israel. We are um, 
you know, we've, we've faced sufferings, as I said, because of our faithfulness. So let's just read these and hopefully just be encouraged that the sufferings that we have are not in vain, and then be encouraged that we can take this passage and understand that God is sovereign over our sufferings. So maybe I'm doing a good job relating these. Maybe I'm doing an awful job. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I promise that the next episodes that we do are going to be a lot better thought through and there's going to be more commentary material. Um, anyways, John fifteen eighteen to 20 says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus says in Matthew ten twenty eight, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In Acts 7, you can just go read that chapter. Um, it's Stephen's defense of his faith, and then he gets stoned by the Sanhedrin. Acts nine fifteen to 16, uh, Jesus confronts Ananias and tells him to go lay hands on Paul, who was blinded from the encounter that he had just had with the risen Jesus. And so Jesus says to Ananias, go for he is, he, that is Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and Kings of the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And this along with, I mean, this is where it explicitly says that we as Christians are to suffer for his namesake. Um, and John 15 is a, was a good example of that as well, that we are going to suffer as Christ suffers. We shouldn't um, run away from suffering, as I think a lot of people try to do with Jeremiah 29, 11. They take it and say, God wants you to be prosperous. He wants you to be healthy. He wants you to... Um, just live a hope-filled, driven life. Um, but actually, I think that within the context that the preceding verses before, you know, uh, 6 through 9, and even a little bit in 10, um, there's this understanding that the Israelites are supposed to embrace the suffering that they're in. And that's the point that I'm trying to make, is that we would embrace our suffering as well, and in doing so, be faithful to God, cling to him as this promise from Jeremiah, or as this exhortation from Jeremiah is telling us to do, to cling to God. So Acts 14, <clears throat> excuse me, my voice is so scratchy. Uh, so dry. <laughs> it is so dry. Acts 14, 19 to 20. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. I love this story. This is just bonkers. And having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. 
supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day, he went away with Barnabas and Derby. So Paul literally gets stoned to the point where the people who stoned him thought he was dead, and they just drag him out of the city because they thought he was dead. And within a day, he gets up and just continues to go preach the gospel. I just think that's crazy. We need more people who are willing to suffer like this, embrace the suffering of true Christianity, and preach the gospel with this much fervency and faith. Oh, man. I could just stop right there and go home. But I'm going to continue. Romans 5, 3 through 5. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Second Corinthians 4.11 says, For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Philippians 3, 8 through 11 says more than that. And he's contrasting. Um, at this point, Paul is contrasting his uh, previous life as a Pharisee. He says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. So Paul connects knowing God and the power of his resurrection by the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So there's an overwhelming New Testament teaching that we are supposed to embrace our suffering, embrace hardship, run into it. Not because... Um, let, me, let me just start over. We're supposed to run into it and not take this text of Jeremiah 29, 11, that God has plans for you. He's got, uh, he's got a hope and a future and he wants to prosper you. We're not as Christians supposed to just take that passage and run with it, but actually we're supposed to pick up our cross say that the wonderful plans that God might have for us is to be exactly in the suffering that we are in, the wonderful plans that he has for us, like he had for Stephen, might be to preach the gospel to a group of people and then get killed immediately. It might be to be beaten to the point of being almost dead. So, 
I share all of this to say that our understanding of suffering should not be um, we shouldn't always understand it as a bad thing but rejoice in our suffering because in that we are joining Christ <clears throat> and so as I said earlier that um, you know we have a lot of times people will take this passage and define welfare and calamity as as their own may we go back into the word dive deep and and really understand what god has defined as good and bad as welfare and calamity because it seems to me that what he defines as welfare throughout the new testament is us grasping and uh firmly clinging to Christ and rejoicing when we are persecuted and when we are suffering for his sake. Because when we do that, that's when we are the closest to him. That's when we're pushed to the point of having absolutely nothing except him. So, I I mean, I hope that this is encouraging. I hope that I was kind of clear in what I was saying. Um, Maybe I'm just thinking out loud, but uh, join me back next week as we talk about Zechariah and start to get into the first couple verses. And until next time, continue to seek God in his word. Embrace your suffering. Don't run away from it. Remember that the most fruitful times in your life will be when you are suffering and joining Christ in his sufferings. Thanks for listening to this episode of Christ in Context. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and a review through Apple Podcasts or whatever streaming app you use to listen, and subscribe to be notified when new content is posted. You can find us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Christ in Context Pod and Twitter at CNC Podcast. For other edifying material, check out the Doctrinal Discipleship Facebook group or the webpage at doctrinaldiscipleship.com.